thinking a little bit about legacy and what we leave for our kids and, and the other important folks in our lives. I, I had a chance this week to uh, go watch my son uh, play baseball. We had a chance to go down in, in Oklahoma and our whole family got to see him. And uh, some of you, uh, you know, saw him over Christmas break and you remarked to me, uh, you know, man, it really looks like he's growing. He's getting big. You know, he's he got his man muscles and all of that sort of stuff. He looks like he's really filling out. And some of you use words like that. And I thought, oh man, yeah. And, and, uh, and then you see him in comparison to other athletes on his baseball team and you realize, oh, he's just a little guy. You know, he's just, oh man, these, these guys are really big. And uh, he would call home sometimes. And, he, and when he called home or texted and those conversations we had, he would mention a friend of his, by the name of Zoe, and, uh, just all the time. He'd say, Zoe said this and Zoe did this and we went and did this. And, and and finally, I asked, well, what's the deal with this Zoe girl? And so then he started to fill uh, me in a little bit on, with some different information about this young lady. He said, well, she's from you know, Texas, and she plays volleyball at school, and her dad was a professional football player, and her mom was a Division I athlete. And, and I was like, well, Clayton, that's not really what I asked. You know, I didn't, I mean, what? What in the world? And, and so, but that's the information he was giving to me. And, and as I thought about that, I, I thought, well, here's a kid. He's trying to play baseball in college, and he's surrounded by these athletes who have this tremendous athletic heritage. And I thought, you know, his athletic heritage, you know, what has been passed down to him by his parents, I know it's hard to believe by looking at me, but it's not as significant, all right? It's not as great. And I thought about, you know, what are my greatest athletic accomplishments? I thought about the fifth grade. And I thought about, you know, this, this competition we had in grade school at the end of the year. And, and if you won these different competitions, your name went on the wall with your score of that competition in grade school. There were different events, right? There was a basketball event, the hot shot events, and you had to shoot from different places on the court. You got different points for those different places, and it was timed. And, and so you tried to score as many points as you could, and, and the winner's name went on the wall at West Indianola grade school. What an achievement. And I, I watched some of these kids shoot baskets and I thought I have a chance to have my name on the wall and then Ricky went and he shot baskets and I thought I don't have any chance of my name being on the wall and Ricky's name went on the wall at West Indianola. I thought well free throws that's more my gig in the free throw competition because you don't have to move. You know, you're just in one spot. And I thought, maybe I can do this. And I watched some kids shoot free throws, and I thought, I've got a chance. And then Kenneth shot free throws, and I thought, there's no shot. There's no chance. You know, he made like 100 free throws. His name went on the wall at West Indianola. Mine did not. And I thought, well, baseball's really my game. So the, the softball toss, the distance toss with, ba- with the softball, that will be my deal. And I watched some kids throw, and I thought, man, I can throw it way further than that. I've got a real shot here. And then Adam threw the softball. And there was no chance Adam's name went on the wall at West Indianola. I just had no chance. None, my name didn't go up ever. And my athletic legacy I left is, is one of just, you know, it's just dim. My wife Sherry said, well, when she was in the fifth grade, she was the fastest kid in her school except for one boy. And I thought, well, okay. I mean, first of all, the, you know, second place is the first loser. But secondly... Secondly, like I, you know, I, I don't know how much of an athletic heritage this is to pass on because, you know, I was the fastest kid in my class except for everyone who was faster than me. 
Uh, there's not much of an athletic heritage to pass on there, and, and, and that's maybe too bad, and I feel bad for Clayton, but it's not really the most important thing we can pass on to our kids, is it? You know, and, and you think about what you want to leave, what you want to uh, make sure that they live out in, your, in their lives, that, that you've tried to live out in your life, and, and as followers of Jesus, we want to we live that life out so that our, our kids, the other people who surround us, the most important people in our lives, they might catch that from us and they might, they might carry out that, that legacy, that we can leave a legacy of faith in, in our lives. And I think absolutely we can build that legacy of faith. And, and uh, Paul writes to his, his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And in this section of scripture, it teaches us three steps to building this legacy of faith in our lives. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up to uh, 2 Timothy. We're going to take a look at chapter 1, the first seven verses here. 2 Timothy is towards the end of your New Testament. So if you go to the back of the Bible and then go left, you'll, you'll come to 2 Timothy fairly rapidly. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to consider verses 1 through 7 as we think about these three steps to building a legacy of faith in our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is what God's Word says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from the God, uh, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. All right, a, a great section of scripture as Paul writes to uh, his friend Timothy and, and he, he teaches Timothy and he's teaching each one of us three steps to building this legacy of faith. Step number one is to pray. We need to begin in prayer. Now, the last several weeks we've, we've talked a little bit about this acronym BLESS and the B in that acronym BLESS uh, stands for begin in prayer. Hopefully in your small groups you've been thinking about this acronym every week and you've been thinking about how you can be a blessing to others and, and how you've lived that out in the last uh, week and, and continue to do that, please. But as we, as we search out ways to bless others in our lives, you know, we need to begin in prayer. And, and even when we think about how, what's the best way we can bless, you know, the most important people in our lives as parents, as followers of Jesus, we want to bless our kids. And how do we do that? Well, we ought to begin in prayer as we build this legacy of faith. Paul says in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This beginning of Paul's letter looks a lot like all of his other letters. They all begin in, in mostly the same way, but that doesn't mean that we should rush past, that we ought not pay attention to what he has to teach us here, because he's really giving us an overview 
you in these first couple of verses of the entire message this morning. He says that I'm Paul, I'm writing this letter, and I'm an apostle of God. And he talks about the fact that as an apostle, he has this mission, right? That's what we know about that. The word apostle means sent out, that he's, he's sent out on mission with purpose by God. And, and his mission is to share the story of Jesus, to share the gospel with, with the Gentiles. And, and, and Paul has this mission. And guess what? Each one of us has a mission as well. Each one of us has been sent out. We have a, a purpose in our lives uh, given to us by God. We're going to talk more about that and what that looks like. But just know that just as Paul announces as he begins this letter that I'm an apostle, I have a mission, I have purpose given to me by God, each one of you has a mission, has a purpose given to you by God. He goes on to say that, that this is all according to the promise of a life that is in Christ Jesus. That that purpose, that mission begins in a relationship with Jesus. And that's where our purpose and mission, if we want to leave a legacy of faith, it has to begin in our own personal relationship with Jesus. And are we paying attention to that and growing that? Paul goes on to say that that vertical relationship is important. And it's important as we grow horizontal relationships, as he, he says, I'm writing this letter to Timothy, my beloved child. He talks about how deeply he cares for Timothy and how much he wants to be able to uh, pass along what he knows uh, to him. First Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus are what we call the pastoral letters. Paul's writing them directly to a, an individual, which is uncommon compared to his other letters in the New Testament. And he's writing Second Timothy especially from a time in prison, the second time that Paul was in prison. The first time he was in prison, he sort of expected to be released. He sort of expected to have this opportunity to, to go and to minister again. The second time left little hope of that. And so in a very real way, Paul is writing this letter as a passing of the baton of ministry from, from Paul the apostle to Timothy, his son in the faith. He's passing along that mission and that purpose to Timothy, encouraging him to continue to share the, the mercy and peace that God has given him. He continues in verse 3 to say, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. If that's Paul's purpose, uh, to share with Timothy, his protege, his mission and his purpose, to, to encourage him uh, in how he can live out that mission and purpose in his life, then Paul says, man, we have to begin in prayer. And I'm going to pray night and day. I'm going to pray without ceasing, he would say in other uh, letters that he wrote. I'm going to pray all the time. I'm going to be consistent and steadfast in my prayers for you. In a way, he's saying, I'm just going to draw the line right here and this is where I'll stand. Mark Batterson, who's an author and preacher, wrote a book that he calls Circle Makers. And, and he, he based this book on a, on a legend, on a story that's told about a Jewish rabbi, a, a guy by the name of Honi who lived outside of Jerusalem. And, and Honi was a, was a guy, kind of a hermit, kind of uh, a guy who, who people heard about and, and thought about a little bit, but didn't see that often. But they knew that Honi was a great man of prayer. And uh, Batterson writes this story where, where he said that for several years uh, it hadn't rained in Jerusalem. And, and, and 
Israel, and, and people were becoming very, very concerned. It was getting to a point where there was no going back, that it was sort of at the end of the rope. And, and so they, they remembered this guy who was called the Rainmaker, this guy Honey who was, lived outside of, of Jerusalem in this hut. And they went and they knocked on his door and they said, we need your help, we need you to pray for rain. And Honey got, came out and, and they said, we, we're, we don't know what to do because we can't hear from God and we don't believe that God hears from us. And Honey said, it, it, I, I promise you this, that, that maybe you're not hearing from God, but I guarantee you that God hears you. And that when we pray, God will answer those prayers. And so Honey went into the middle of the city and, and he got... He's, sat down in the middle of the city, took out his staff, and he drew this circle. He turned around and he drew this circle in the dirt in the middle of the city. You know, I, I imagine like in the middle of a Star Wars movie, right? This Jedi guy just shooting out a, a lightsaber and drawing this circle in the middle of the city. And then he sat down and he started to pray. And he prayed for rain. And the rain started, and light sort of sprinkles. And Honey said, this isn't the rain that I prayed for. I prayed for a rain that would fill barrels and cisterns and, and, and caverns. And so he continued to pray, and the rain came down harder. And he said, this isn't the rain I prayed for. I prayed for a rain that would sustain crops and sustain people. And the rain fell to a gentle kind of rain, that, the kind of rain that you know is, is soaking into the soil, the kind of rain that you know that, that the flowers are going to spring up and the crops are going to take in all of that, that nutrient, all that stuff that they need. And, and Honey continued to pray, and it continued to rain. Hey, he drew that circle, and it was like he was saying to everyone, I'm going to stay here until God provides rain until God answers this prayer. Uh, folks, we, we maybe are in a place in our lives where we need to circle up and pray. I, I don't think there's anything magical about the circle that Honey drew. I don't think there's anything super spiritual about that act of drawing a circle. It reminds me of the old westerns. You know, what, what did the wagon trains do when they got into trouble? You know, they circled the wagons, didn't they? And they said, okay, this is the place. This is the place where we will make our stand. This is the place where we will begin and we will sustain and we will end the fight. This is where we will begin that journey together. And I think maybe we're in a place where we need to go home as parents and we need to circle around our children's bed tonight when we pray for them. Just as a way to remind us that we're beginning the journey here in prayer. That we will continue to pray. And that we will end the fight together in prayer in this place. Some of you are, are dreading heading off to work tomorrow. It's just been such a burden the last weeks or months or whatever it is and, and it's weighing you down and you're tired and you think, man, I don't see an end in sight. And maybe that's the time and place when we need, to, we need to leave a few minutes early even as we dread heading off to work so that we can drive around the block, right? So we can circle that office, so we can circle that workplace and we can just, we can just remind ourselves that this is where I'll begin this journey and this fight in prayer for that colleague who's bugging me, for that, that, the, 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 the employee who just isn't getting it and I don't know what to do, for the issue that we can't seem to solve. 
It will remind us that, that our, our journey, our fight doesn't just begin there, but we're going to continue to pray through that hard week of work. And we're going to end the fight there in prayer. Maybe there's a promise from God that we need to circle and be reminded of. And just know we can continue to trust and to rely on Him. Honey understood and he, he valued the power of prayer and he was willing to, to draw that circle. Each one of us needs to be willing to, to draw that circle. Maybe not physically, but in our minds or whatever. There's nothing magical about it. But just remember that we need to begin and continue and end our journey in prayer. Step number one, if we want to leave a legacy of faith with the most important people in our lives, is that we need to begin by praying. Uh, step number two, step number two is that a sincere faith is the real family heirloom. Sincere faith is the real family heirloom. I thank God, Paul says, whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Uh, Paul describes this, this uh, legacy of faith that he received from uh, you know, his, his parents and his grandparents, that he had this spiritual foundation. Now we know from studying Paul's life and just from other stories that that, that spiritual foundation wasn't, wasn't perfect. You know, that it led Saul, Paul, to a place where, where he thought he was serving God by, by pursuing and arresting Christians. And, and it took this encounter with the risen Savior to sign, change Saul's direction. And that encounter on the road to Damascus, he, he sees uh, Jesus in, in this bright light and he hears a voice and he's blinded by that light. He goes into town, he meets with a, a follower of Jesus who prays for him and his, his sight is restored. And, and right after his sight is restored, Saul is, is baptized and he accepts Jesus in his life. He joins with, with others before him who, who maybe doubted uh, about who Jesus was and is. Like the most famous doubter, Thomas, do you remember him? A guy who after Jesus had risen from the dead and had, had shown up to some other folks, that they'd seen the risen Jesus, and, and they came and they told the, the disciples, some of the closest 12 who had yet to see him, hey, we saw Jesus and we talked to him, and, and Thomas said, unless I can put my hand in his side and my, my fingers in the, the holes in his hands, I won't believe that he raised from the dead. And so when Jesus shows up in that room where Thomas is and he said, come over here, Thomas, and, and touch my hands and put your hand in my side. And, and Thomas replies by proclaiming in John chapter 20, verse 28, he says, my Lord and my God. He, he makes this proclamation that Jesus is God. And, and do you notice that he makes this in a, in a personal way? That God just isn't this distant God. But Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. That there's this personal relationship that we have with the vertical God. This vertical relationship with God. It's so important that we begin that relationship. And we can say yes to Him like so many others. In Acts chapter 18, this, this guy by the name of Crispus who was, uh, had a story sort of similar to, to Saul, Paul, who was a, a synagogue leader who heard about Jesus and he decided to receive Him along with his whole house and they were baptized. And when they were baptized, many others in the town heard that story from them and they believed and they were baptized. Baptized. 
Maybe you're in a place that you need to shout out like Thomas, my Lord and my God, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he died and that he rose again. And you need, need to begin a relationship with him. You need to start this vertical relationship and be baptized, accept him in baptism, just like Crispus, just like Saul. And continue to grow that because if we want to leave a legacy of faith, we have to begin with this relationship, our own personal relationship with Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 4 to say, As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. You know, the two greatest commands are to love God with all our heart, our, all our mind, and all our, our soul, and to love others as ourselves. That vertical relationship is the beginning and start, and it's got to sustain us through all of those horizontal relationships that are important to us. Timothy, who Paul describes as a beloved son in the faith, he wants, he wants to be there with Timothy. He wants to go through the ups and downs in, in Timothy's life with him. He wants to share this sincere faith he has with Timothy. In verse 5, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And what do we want to really pass on to our kids or, or the important people in our life? We want to pass on the sincere faith. And what in the world does that sincere faith look like? I think for too many of us, sometimes myself included, we get caught in this trap where we think, well, a sincere faith must be a perfect faith. It's got to be a faith where I don't make mistakes. You know, when I, when I mess up, when I choose poorly, when I make a mistake, surely if others are leaning on me, then th that will ruin their relationship as well. And I just don't think that's true. I, I, don't, I don't think God is calling us to be perfect. I think he's calling us to be sincere in our faith. Uh, that word that, that Paul uses to describe this faith in, in Timothy and in his mom and in his grandmother, he says that faith dwells in them. It means that they live with their faith. That faith is lived out in their lives. It reminded me of another place where you read that word dwells in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And think about what did it mean that Jesus dwelled among us? What did that look like? I read in a book that mentioned this last week something that I hadn't really thought about. That Jesus lived for three decades, for 30 years, on this planet, in, in Nazareth mostly, before he started what we consider to be his ministry, this three-year period of time where he was baptized and started to teach and preach and heal and eventually go to the cross. We, we focus on those three years. That's what we have the most information about. But for three decades, Jesus simply stayed put. He was present. He, he grew up. He learned the family trade. He learned how to interact and, and to get along with, with people who had a personality similar to him, and he learned how to get along with people whose personality was different than him. He learned how to, how to share with his brothers and sisters. He was educated in the school or by his folks, and, and he grew in knowledge. He, he just was present. He stayed put. He built these relationships that would extend into his ministry. Uh, for 30 years, for 30 years, Jesus was simply present. 
What's more, when, when he is preparing to ascend into heaven, he, he says he gives these marching orders to his disciples, and at the end of those marching orders, he says, I promise you that I'll always be with you. Jesus, in, in a way that none of us are, are able, promises to be present. And yet, when we seek to live out this sincere faith, we need to practice that idea of presence, of just staying put. When, when our relationship with Him seems to be stale and hard, and, and it seems like we're not getting much out of the worship service or the Bible study we're showing up for, we need to stay put, to be present. Have you ever wondered if Jesus liked being a carpenter? Jesus, who created everything we see in six days, gets a project for a kitchen table from his neighbors. I wonder if he went to work that day thinking, all of my skills are being put to use, right? But he stayed put, he was present. Uh, he wasn't just present, though. You know, he just wasn't sitting on the back row. Most of the information we have about Jesus' life is in those last three years, and we see Jesus being really active. Like he's healing people, and he teaches in a way that nobody else had ever taught. He, he serves people in a way that nobody else had, had served people. He makes room for people in his life around his table in a way that... Uh, Nobody else made room for. You know, this woman at the well who was a Samaritan and a woman, somebody that nobody, a rabbi, who would not have talked to in the middle of the day, Jesus stops and initiates a conversation. He makes room for her in his life. One of my favorite stories about Jesus is he gets tired and he's worn out. And why is he tired and worn out? Because he's surrounded by people. Because the crowd is pressing in around him. They have needs and he's taught and he's prayed and he's healed and he's done so much. He wants to spend some time alone with God. And so he takes off across the sea. You know, he takes off across the sea. He can't even wait for a boat. He just walks out there. He wants to get away. Uh, people hear about where he's going though and they beat him to the other side of the lake the crowd regathers and it reforms and when jesus finally he caught up with his disciples got in the boat got out of the boat on the other side of the sea he, he looks out at this crowd of people that he's trying to escape and scripture says that he had compassion on them and when he was worn out and exhausted he taught and he healed and he served some more. Jesus was active and he made room for, for others in his life. He was, he was just present. He stayed put and he was active. And we can, we can serve others and allow others to serve us, to, to be active in our life. To be sincere doesn't mean to be perfect, but it does mean to, to, to to be present, to stay put. My, I, I was thinking about the other day, my dad, and, uh, you know, my dad uh, just showed up. One of the things I remember most about him is that he, he showed up at every, you know, junior high football game, at every orchestra concert. You know, he judged debate tournaments when I was in high school, something that he had no interest in doing at all, right? 
I remember as a kid sometimes thinking, you know, my parents are so lucky because what in the world would they do without all this stuff? Without these games to go to? You know, how would they spend their time? And then, I, I, as an adult, you know, I attended a, a junior high football game and realized how terrible that is. Right? I, I watched a seventh grade girls basketball game and thought, I may never wake up again. <laughs> you know, the, the list of things that you could have been doing was, was so great, and it, it changes your perspective on just how present, you know, my dad was and what that meant in my life as a kid when I, I didn't really know it. You know, I think about the difference that my parents made and how active they were and how that, that faith wasn't perfect. The things they did weren't perfect, but they passed down. My dad, he taught me to throw a baseball. And for years and years and years, I threw the baseball the way he taught me. And I played in games and I was successful in some of these, for years and years and years until I got cut from a team because I was throwing the baseball incorrectly the way my dad had taught me. You know, it wasn't perfect. And it lasted for a long time. In fact, you know, it grew in me a love for a game that I passed on to my kids. And, and you know, maybe they catch that a little bit. And that's not really important or anything. It's kind of cool, right? It, it just illustrates how our faith doesn't need to be perfect. But by being present, by being active, by being sincere, we can pass that along to our kids. A sincere faith is... is uh, uh, the real family heirloom that we need to pass along. Step number three is that we need to fan the flame. Look at verse six and seven here. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When you read First and Second Timothy, I think one of the things that stands out a little bit is that I believe Timothy was, was a guy who was, not, uh, who was a little more naturally timid. I don't think he was the type of guy who maybe at the party would just be venturing up to everyone and saying, you know, hey, what's going on, and introducing himself. I'm not sure his first inclination in a worship service was to stand up and begin to preach. I think God had to, had to develop something in him. And, and Paul is reminding him that as we have this sincere faith in our life, that God is changing us from the inside out through his Holy Spirit, that he's given us uh, this, this spirit that's, that's powerful, that doesn't need to be afraid, that's a spirit of love and, and self-control. We can, we can work in, in our lives and in others' lives. And we need to fan that flame the gift of God which he's given us, which was given to, to Timothy, Paul says, through the laying on of my hands. Let's work backwards a little bit through verse 6. Because Paul says this interesting phrase that he laid on uh, hands on uh, Timothy and gave him this gift, that God gave him this gift through the laying on of hands. When I read those words laying on of hands, I, I think of the word ordination. And, and so I, I looked up a definition of ordination uh, this weekend, and it read something like this, the act of ordaining. That's very helpful, isn't it? But the end of the definition said, or carrying out, or carrying out uh, at, at holy order. And I thought, what a cool idea. 
carrying out this holy order. And while some of us might think, well, ordination, laying on of hands, we think that's something reserved for maybe, maybe the vocational ministry, right? We're going to ordain this pastor and we're going to lay on hands for this uh, select group of people. I promise you, I promise you that there is not a follower of Jesus in this room who is living without a holy order in their life to live out. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus leaves these last marching orders, this holy order to his followers. And it's not left to this select group of vocational ministers or apostles or disciples, but it's given to the church at large. It's given to you as a follower of Jesus to go and make disciples, baptizing them in his name, teaching them everything that he has commanded. That implies a growing vertical relationship between you and he. That you are, are learning and growing in everything that he's taught. And that you're able and willing to, to share that through the gifts and through the talents and through the abilities that he's given you. It's the holy order, the calling that he's placed on every one of our lives. We were at the, the college for uh, an interview for uh, a scholarship for Lacey, our daughter, and the president was talking about going to college as a calling. He said he felt called to this university as president. He had been a student there many years ago and went away to be a pastor in churches and, and serve in their denomination, came back to be president of the university. He felt called to serve in that position. He talked about students being called to a, to a college. And here's my deal. I'm not sure that selecting job A over job B places you in or out of God's will. I'm not sure if choosing school one or school two puts you in or places you outside of God's will. But I do believe that we are called with a given a holy order wherever we are wherever we are to fan into flame the talents and the gifts and the abilities that he's given us he he talks about laying on of hands this holy order that's been given to us and then he talks about the, the this gift This gift of God, which is in you. You know, I, I think about the, the spiritual giftedness for each one of us. And, and when I think about spiritual gifts, I like to think of this acronym SHAPE. And, and it just helps me to understand that it's more than just a list that we might read in Scripture. It's an acronym. The S stands for spiritual gifts. There are spiritual gifts that are named in Scripture. And sometimes we read that as comprehensive. Sometimes we le read that and think, well, I don't fit in. Understand that those lists are not comprehensive, that there are more spiritual gifts than are listed than in the New Testament, that, that we can do all kinds of things with those that list of spiritual gifts but whatever we do with them they ought to incorporate the rest of that acronym shape because God has shaped uh, each one of us differently he's given us different spiritual gifts he's given us a different heart he, he's he's made uh, the passion in us for different things each one of us he's given us different abilities the the stuff that we're good at he's created us each differently in that he's created us with different personalities that relate in different situations and to different people uh, differently. That's why we need every one of us to play a role on his team. We have different experiences, educational backgrounds, jobs, just different experiences in life 
that God can use in, in different ways. And when you, you put all of those ideas together, it, it makes our shape. And, and we need to determine how we fan into flame that gift of God in each one of our lives. I was serving as a youth pastor in Yuma, Arizona, and we, we had plans for a bonfire one night, and we, we, we had a, a family in the church who owned this huge farm, and, and farms in, in, uh, in Yuma, you know, they grow lettuce and vegetables, and so they're, they're very flat. You know, the crops don't grow high. All the, uh, it's the desert, and so it's very flat, and you can see, you, you drive to the middle of a farm in Yuma, and you can see for miles in any direction. And so we find a spot on this farm where we're going to have this, this bonfire where it's safe. And, and the farmer said, this would be a great spot. And so we, we drive out there. I, I take a, a college freshman. His name was Brad. I take him with me in the afternoon and say, okay, this is where the bonfire is going to be. We get all the stuff we need, all the materials, lighter fluid, matches, wood, everything that he needs. And I said, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to come out about an hour before. He worked on that farm. So he knew the area. I want you to come out an hour before and I want you to start the bonfire because it's the desert and even though it was February or whatever, it was still 80 degrees, right? Nobody wants this huge, you know, we want to be able close enough to roast the marshmallows without dying. And so start the fire an hour before so it has time to burn down. And, and uh, even though it'll be dark, we decided, you know, I'll be able, we'll be able to see the fire easy because it's flat and you'll see the fire burning. And so I said, okay, you, you get out here early and do that. And we went back and, and uh, that evening, you know, got all the kids together and we did whatever we were needing to do before we headed out and we loaded into vans and we drive to the farm. And I get to the farm and, and I have a pretty good idea of what direction I went that afternoon, but I thought as I, as I drove into the farm, I'd see the fire. It would be so easy to spot. And I drove in and it was just pitch black. And so I'm following the directions, thinking I'm going in the same way, and I'm getting closer and closer to that location of the bonfire, but there's no fire. And I think, what in the world's going on? And so I get out, and I talk to the youth coaches, look, I think we're really close, but I'm not sure. I thought we'd see the fire by now. You know, I'm worried that I went in the wrong direction. And so we get back in, I keep driving the way I thought I was supposed to go, and finally we see a light click on and click off. And a few minutes later it clicks on again and it clicks off, and we get there finally, and we find Brad still trying to light the fire. I get out and I said, what's wrong? He said, I don't know, I used all the lighter fluid and it blew up and then and it died. And now I'm out of lighter fluid and I can't get anything to start. I don't have any paper. I don't have, I'm out of everything. And I thought, what a disaster. You know, how important is it to, to start with that spark, to have a little kindling, to have some paper to begin and to, then to fan into flames that fire, to grow it over time. And that's really what Paul is calling us to do, to consider our shape. How has God shaped us? What abilities, what personality, what spiritual gifts, what experiences have we lived through? Have we gone through? You know, what, what are our biggest hurts? How can we make that our biggest ministry? How can we fan these things into flame to grow in our life so that everybody can see the fire, so that everybody can see the light? You know, I, I'm sure this isn't the, the answer in totality, but one way you can start is, is even next Sunday at our, at our ministry team fair, right? 
He'd go around, I'd meet the ministry team leaders, consider the different opportunities to serve here at Wallula Christian Church. Try one out. I promise you that if it's not a fit for your personality or for your abilities or for your experiences or for your, your, your passions, that, that we'll find you another opportunity. You don't have to do that forever. Try one out. See if you can fan into flame you know, the shape, the gifts in your life. To be able to, to better share your, uh, your, your spiritual legacy with others. You know, some folks have this great athletic legacy to leave uh, to their, their kids. Uh, Kobe Bryant is an 18, 18-year all-star in the NBA. Uh, you know, some folks, if you want to argue about stuff like this, could argue that, that maybe he was the greatest basketball player of all time. He died recently in a helicopter accident. You've, you've read those stories, a tragic story of uh, he and his daughter and several other people who died in that helicopter accident. I, I watched a video, an interview that he gave, I, I think a couple of years prior, about why he started to travel by helicopter in Los Angeles. It, it's so far removed from sort of my frame of reference that, you know, I had no idea that people did this, right? That this was a choice that some people could make. But he said his time and his schedule was such that, you know, he had to be at practice and he had to had obligations with the team and with media. And, and just to travel by car in Los Angeles made the commute from these places. Uh, it took hours to go back and forth from his home to practice to these different obligations. And so as a, as a father of daughters who wanted to be at their school activities, who wanted to be able to pick his daughters up from school as a guy obviously with some financial means he made this choice to fly from practice to his neighborhood by helicopter and in fact on that flight where that crashed and that he died his 13 or 14 year old daughter died in that same crash on their way to a basketball game together He's a, a father who passes on this tremendous kind of genetic heritage to his kids, huh? This athletic ability sort of built in. But even in his death, I think it gives us a clue that I'm sure far from perfect, he was on the right track of what, which legacy he really wanted to leave to those closest to him. We need to decide. What legacy do we really want to leave to those closest to us, to the most important relationships we have? We can, we can pass on this spiritual legacy, this legacy of faith, as we begin in prayer, as we determine that that's the, that's the legacy. I want to stay put. I want to share this sincere faith with those around me. We can fan into flame the gifts God has given us to pass on that legacy of faith. Let's stand and uh, worship Jesus together.